Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 16th, 2023. President Joe Biden says the shooting down of a Chinese surveillance balloon after it flew over the U.S. sent a clear message that the violation of our sovereignty is unacceptable. And while he says the U.S. is not looking for a new Cold War with China, he makes no apologies for taking down that balloon and will remain in communication with Chinese President Xi Jinping. President also saying that the three other aerial objects shot down in the past couple of days of them, he does not know exactly what they are, but nothing suggests, he says, they're related to the Chinese balloon program. And the president says there's no evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. Coming up, we'll have the president's full statement. Republican Senator Josh Hawley today calling for a foreign policy pivot from supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia's invasion to countering China. The EPA Administrator Michael Regan traveling to East Palestine, Ohio, site of the train derailment that led to a toxic chemical spill and fire and concerns about the health effects of those who live there. He told the crowd, I'm asking they trust the government. I know that's hard. We know there's a lack of trust. We're testing for everything that was on that train. We'll hear from the administrator and Ohio Senators J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown and talk with a Columbus Dispatch reporter about the response and the debate over how much the federal government should be involved in the cleanup and recovery. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy leading a delegation of freshman House members to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona, highlighting the issues of border security, illegal immigration, and drug trafficking. Senate Agriculture Committee focusing on food aid for low-income households, the benefit known as SNAP, in its latest hearing on the 2023 Farm Bill that will be written this year. And President Biden gets his routine physical exam, closely watched by many, as he is 80 years old and thinking about running for a second term in 2024. Associated Press out of Beijing writes, China's ceremonial parliament has accused American lawmakers of trampling on the sovereignty of other nations after the U.S. passed a measure condemning a suspected Chinese spy balloon's intrusion into U.S. airspace. The statement issued Thursday by the National People's Congress's Foreign Affairs Committee repeated Beijing's insistence that the balloon was an unmanned civilian weather research airship, a claim the U.S. has dismissed, citing its flight route and payload of surveillance equipment. While China at first expressed regret over the February 4th incident, it has toughened its rhetoric in a further sign of how badly relations between the sides have deteriorated in recent years. That from Associated Press. President Biden today making an eight-minute statement about that Chinese balloon and the three other recent aerial objects shot down by the U.S. military. The president spoke in the Eisenhower Executive Office building. Last week, in the immediate aftermath of the incursion by China's high-altitude balloon, our military, through the North American Aerospace Defense Command, so-called NOR- NORAD, closely scrutinized uh, the, uh, our airspace, including enhancing our radar to pick up more slow-moving objects above our country, around the world. In doing so, they uh, tracked three unidentified objects, one in Alaska, Canada, and over Lake Huron in the Midwest. They acted in accordance with established parameters for determining how to deal with unidentified aerial objects in U.S. airspace. At their recommendation, I gave the order to take down these three objects due to hazards to civilian commercial air traffic and because we could not rule out the surveillance risk of sensitive facilities. 
We acted in consultation with the Canadian government. I spoke personally with Prime Minister Trudeau and Kant from Canada on Saturday. And just as critically, we acted out of an abundance of caution and an opportunity that allowed us to take down these, these objects safely. Our military and the Canadian military are seeking to recover the debris so we can learn more about these three objects. Our intelligence community is still assessing all three incidences. They're reporting to me daily and will continue their urgent efforts to do so, and I will communicate that to the Congress. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. When I came into office, I instructed our intelligence community to take a broad look at the phenomenon of unidentified aerial objects. We know that a range of entities, including countries, companies, and research organizations, operate objects at altitudes for purposes that are not nefarious, including legitimate scientific research. I want to be clear. We don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. And we have to keep adapting our approach to uh, delaying, to dealing with these challenges. That's why I've directed my team to come back to me with sharper rules for how we will deal with these unidentified objects moving forward, distinguishing, distinguishing between those that are likely to pose safety and security risks that necessitate action and those that do not. But make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed, and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses. Going forward, these parameters will guide what actions we'll take while responding to unmanned and unidentified aerial objects. We're going to keep adapting them as the challenges evolve, if it evolves. In addition, I've directed my national security advisor to lead a government-wide effort to make sure we are positioned to deal safely and effectively with the objects in our airspace. First, <clears throat> we will establish a better inventory of unmanned airborne objects in space above the United States airspace and make sure that inventory is accessible and up-to-date. Second, We'll implement further measures to improve our capacity to detect unmanned objective, uh, objects in our airspace. Third, we'll update the rules and regulations for launching and maintaining unmanned objects in the skies above the United States of America. And fourth, my Secretary of State will lead an effort to help establish a global, a global, common global norms in this largely unregulated space. These steps will lead to safer and more secure skies for our air travelers, our military, our scientists, and for people on the ground as well. That's my job as your president, commander in chief. As the events of the previous days have shown, we'll always act to protect the interest of the American people and the security of the American people. Since I came to office, we've developed the ability to identify, track, and study high-altitude surveillance balloons connected with the Chinese military. When one of these high-altitude surveillance balloons entered our airspace 
over the continental United States earlier in the month, I gave the order to shoot it down as soon as it would be safe to do so. The military advised against shooting it down over land because of the sheer size of it. It was the size of multiple school buses and opposed a risk to people on the ground if it was shot down where people lived. Instead, we tracked it closely, we analyzed its capabilities, and we learned more about how it operates. And because we knew its path, we were able to protect sensitive sites against collection. We waited until it was safely over water, which would not only protect civilians, but also enable us to recover substantial components for further, analysts, for, for, for further analytics. And then we shot it down, sending a clear message, clear message, the violation of our sovereignty is unacceptable. We'll act to protect our country, and we did. Now, this past Friday, we put restrictions on six firms that directly support the People's Republic Liberation Army, the People's, Lib the People's Liberation Army Aerospace Program that includes airships and balloons, uh, denying them access to U.S. technology. We briefed our diplomatic partners and our allies around the world, and we know about China's program and where their balloons have flown. Some of them have also raised their concerns directly with China. Our exports have lifted components of the Chinese balloons payload off the ocean floor. We're analyzing them as I speak, and what we learn will strengthen our capabilities. Now, we'll also continue to engage with China, as we have throughout the past two weeks. As I've said since the beginning of my administration, we seek competition, not conflict with China. We're not looking for a new Cold War, but I make no apologize. I make no apologies, and we will compete. And we'll, be res we'll responsibly manage that competition so that it doesn't veer into conflict. This episode underscores the importance of maintaining open lines of communication between our diplomats and our military professionals. Our diplomats will be engaging further, and I will remain in communication with President Xi. I'm grateful for the work of the last several weeks of our intelligence, diplomatic, and military professionals who have proved once again to be the most capable in the world. And I want to thank you all. Now, look, the other thing I want to point out is that we are going to keep our allies and the Congress contemporaneously informed of all we know and all we learn. And uh, I expect to be speaking with President Xi, and I hope we have we are going to get to the bottom of this. But I make no apologies for taking down that balloon. Thank you very much. Sir, there's been criticism. There's been criticism that this was. There's been criticism that this. Sir, Mr. President, Mr. President, there has been criticism. Mr. President, there has been criticism that this was an overreaction that was done because of political pressure. You come my off and ask the question when you have more polite people. Mr. President, why have you chosen Poland for your trip to mark anniversary of the war? And what's your message? What? President Joe Biden today in the Eisenhower Executive Office building right next to the White House. The Twitter account at House GOP tweeted about one of the questions at, that the president was asked that you just heard. They tweet, reporter asking, is your ability to deal with China compromised by your family's business relationships in China? President Biden responding, give me a break, man. And then House GOP adding, it's a fair question. Why can't he answer it? What's he hiding?
The U.S. Senate has joined the House in passing resolutions condemning China for that spy balloon, one coming from Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri. It condemns the Chinese Communist Party for an invasion of U.S. airspace while calling on the president to be transparent with the American people and Congress about the spy balloon incident and other attempts at espionage from China. The second resolution, a bipartisan one from Senators John Tester, Democrat from Montana, and Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, condemns China for a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty with that spy balloon. That spy balloon was first spotted by the public over Montana. Senator Tester posting a short video after the resolutions passed last night. My bipartisan resolution condemning China for sending a surveillance balloon over the United States just passed the Senate. This is a bipartisan effort to inform China that not only were their actions inappropriate, but their moves to replace us economically and militarily will fail. It is important that we get to the bottom of what transpired with that balloon that went over Montana and was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. I will continue to demand answers to the questions so that we have a plan moving forward if this were to happen again. Senator John Tester posting the video Wednesday night. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has tasked him with investigating that specific Chinese spy balloon incident. Reuters reports that China announcing new sanctions against U.S. defense contractors Lockheed Martin Corporation and Raytheon Technologies Corporation over sales of military equipment to Taiwan, saying that both are now added to their unreliable entities list. That means they can't engage in import and export activities related to China. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, today calling on the Biden administration to take a tougher stance against China and move away from pledging support until victory for Ukraine in its war against Russia's invasion. Senator Hawley speaking today at the Heritage Foundation in Washington. We should have seen the threat from China coming years ago, but the Uniparty didn't, and they still aren't taking it seriously. Right now, we have leaders on both parties, former NATO brass, telling us that defending Ukraine is basically the same thing as deterring China. I'm sure you've heard this argument. It's all over town. It's all over the media that if one dictator is allowed to seize territory by force in one place, then no one's territory is safe anywhere else. Now, I notice these people don't ever seem to be particularly concerned about our territory, namely our southern border. But let's just set that aside for one moment. And let's consider this idea that somehow by fighting Ukraine, we're actually deterring China in Asia. The truth is that China's path to global superpower runs through Asia. In order to establish itself as the global power it seeks to be, China must establish hegemony in Asia, which means we must stop them there. As Napoleon once is said to have remarked, if you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. If you want to deter China in Asia, deter them in Asia. The idea that spending money in Ukraine will somehow stop China's military buildup and its imperial ambitions elsewhere is simply fanciful. And yet, Congress has poured billions, over $100 billion and counting, into Ukraine defenses at a time when the American people are still dealing with sky-high inflation, and there's no end in sight. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, today at the Heritage Foundation. In the middle of his speech, he was interrupted by a protester with the group Code Pink, which describes itself as a women-led grassroots organization working to end U.S. wars and militarism. 
And what do our leadership? One trillion dollar every year in the state, your state of Missouri is over half of people are in poverty. China is not our enemy. The climate crisis is. We need to be this serious about the climate crisis. That is the GDP. We need diplomacy in Ukraine and with China. We are continuing to have more aggression with China, and we are spending more on our military than every than a hundred countries combined. The climate crisis is our common. It's interesting. This administration wants to use the climate crisis as a justification for its agenda in Ukraine and elsewhere. Maybe they ought to visit with that gal. Senator Josh Hawley at the Heritage Foundation. You can find the full video, C-SPAN covered it, at our website, cspan.org. Washington Post has a story coming out of Munich, Germany. Vice President Kamala Harris touched down here Thursday in preparation for a speech to world leaders that will express enduring solidarity with Ukraine in its conflict with Russia. Even as the White House has warned Kyiv, it could soon see limits in support from the United States and other countries. Vice President Harris scheduled to speak at the Munich Security Conference on Saturday, the second straight year she has led the U.S. delegation to the international gathering of political, intelligence, and defense leaders. This time, the vice president is addressing the global summit just days before the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine as the world braces for what could be a decisive spring fighting season. That from the Washington Post. Several U.S. senators also making the trip to the Munich Security Conference on a CODEL or congressional delegation that is still named for the late Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona. One of the senators making the trip this year, Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, spoke with reporters today on Capitol Hill. Codell McCain is named after John because he loved the transatlantic partnership. And we're going to fly the flag, uh, bipartisan, House, Senate, bicameral. And the whole idea of the Munich Security Conference after World War II was to prevent what's going on. The Munich Security Conference came out of the ashes of World War II to create a, uh, create a transatlantic partnership to the United States and Europe, now it's expanded in a rules-based society where sovereignty is uh, respected. If you got disputes about who owns what, you go to court. You just don't take things by force of arms. So I find it very ironic that as we go into this Munich Security Conference, uh, the map of Europe is put in doubt by force of arms. Uh, the alliance has held the Republican Party will hold. Uh, asking questions about where taxpayer dollars go is very appropriate. Whether or not our money is hitting the target, whether or not there's corruption involved in the system, count me in. The idea of abandoning Ukraine is just folly. China is watching. The world is interconnected. And I will say this to all the attendees at Munich. Everything we've said since World War II about the world as it should be will ring hollow and just talk if Putin gets away with this. So the sooner they can get the jets, the sooner they can have the capability in Ukraine to expel the Vader, the better. But I will not tolerate, and I'm sure John McCain would say it to the, with every ounce of his being, that when the military conflict is over, accountability has to be center stage to deter this in the future. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, at a news conference today on Capitol Hill in Washington with two Democratic senators who are also going to the Munich Security Conference, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. 
A story from NPR, the Kyiv military administration says it shot down six Russian balloons that appeared over the Ukrainian capital during an air raid warning on Wednesday. And similar balloons had appeared in other parts of Ukraine on Sunday. A spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force said the balloons had plain metal triangles suspended with string below them, saying that was enough to appear like an incoming missile or drone on Ukrainian radars. He said on national TV, Russia wants Ukraine to waste its ammunition on these balloons, which effectively cost them nothing at all. You're listening to Washington Today. A story from the Akron Beacon Journal in Ohio. Michael Regan, the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, said the federal agency is absolutely going to hold Norfolk Southern responsible on the derailment of one of its trains carrying hazardous materials in East Palestine. Michael Regan is in that city today, 13 days after the train derailed and caught fire in the village. He said there's 24-7 air monitoring in place with no levels of concern detected. He also said water testing is ongoing, and the Ohio Department of Health recommends residents use bottled water. I want this community to know that they don't have to manage this issue on their own. As President Biden told Governor DeWine, anything the state needs, we will be here to help. As Governor DeWine and I discussed last night, we are going to get through this as a team. And at the same time, we are absolutely going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. And I can promise you that. From the very beginning, EPA personnel have been on site supporting local and state partners as they've led emergency response efforts. We've had boots on the ground leading robust air quality testing, including the advanced technological aspect plane and a mobile analytical laboratory in and around East Palestine. Since the fire went out, EPA air monitoring has not detected any levels of health concern in the community that are attributed to the, to the train derailment. EPA has assisted with the screening of more than 480 homes under the voluntary screening program offered to residents and no detections of vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride were identified. And we're continuing to make those screenings available to any resident that wants to have their indoor air tested. We're also continuing to conduct 24-7 air monitoring to ensure the health and safety of all residents. As it relates to water, EPA is supporting Ohio and the local government in determining what impacts the spill has had on surface and groundwater and ensuring that the derailment has not had an effect on drinking water supplies. The state is also working with local health agencies and public water systems to get their drinking water from the groundwork that get their drinking water from groundwater sources. The state is currently awaiting those test results. For residents who rely on private drinking water wells, EPA has worked together with Ohio EPA and local health agencies to develop a residential re-entry plan to ensure that homeowners can get their private wells tested. Until test results are received, the Ohio Department of Health has recommended that residents use bottled water. The EPA Administrator Michael Regan had a news conference in East Palestine, Ohio. He was joined by members of Congress from Ohio, Representative Bill Johnson, a Republican, and Sherrod Brown, Senator, a Democrat. Senator Brown asked about getting federal money to help the recovery from the train crash and chemical spill and fire 
Ohio's Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican, putting out a statement today saying he spoke to the White House to request federal help from the Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, continues to tell Governor DeWine that Ohio is not eligible for assistance at this time. Here's the question to Senator Brown. What um, does the area need to do to become eligible for federal assistance? Well, um, I've been working with Governor DeWine. Uh, Ann Vogel just talked to you about his uh, declaration this morning. We sent him a letter late yesterday. Um, he is responding uh, by either, either well, asking, the, he talked to the White House this morning, and uh, the White House has talked to me about this. Uh, I think all of the, whether it's FEMA, whether it's CDC, whether it's EPA already, um, whether it's FRA, whether it's the Surface Transportation Safety, Surface Transportation Safety Board, like SD, um, all, all of them are on board. So you will see that seamless work between Governor DeWine on behalf of the state and President Biden and me, and I assume Senator Vance and Congressman uh, and the two Congress people here from Ohio today working on this. So I think there's nothing to worry about that way. What would that assistance look like? Well, we don't know. It's what Governor DeWine asked for, but it's CDC testing. It's working on the, the, the people in charge of rail or FRA and the Surface Transportation Safety Board. I didn't get that right, but close enough. Um, on any, any of those agencies that Governor HHS is involved, any of those agencies that Governor DeWine needs service from. So the, 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 he's told it that the state is not eligible for this. So it sounds the like there's something that the state wants that the federal government is I, I, I don't think there is. I think that everything that the Fed, the state government is, everything that I can see that the state government asks, is asked for, they are eligible, and I will fight on behalf of Governor DeWine and the state to make sure that they get those services. Senator Sherrod Brown at a news conference in East Palestine, Ohio, and also there, the EPA Administrator Michael Regan. Earlier in the day, the other U.S. Senator from Ohio, Republican J.D. Vance, spoke to reporters at a separate news conference in the city. And I think that one of the things we're going to have to keep hammering on is whether it's Norfolk Southern or whether it's eventually the federal government, these guys need a lot of equipment replacement in order for them to do their job. So that's something we're going to be focusing on. Uh, and then finally, we need to give this community long-term confidence that their health is protected. Even if, let's say for the sake of argument, we have no concerns about the the, the safety of the air or the water, and as I just said, I do have concerns, but for the sake of argument, let's say we have no concerns, we have a community that's been affected by this tragedy that is justifiably very worried about what's going on, and so we need to give people confidence that this is a safe place to live, to work, to raise a family, and that's going to be something we focus on, I think, for the next uh, two years, the next five years, maybe the next 10 years. So have to take some questions. Um, I, I would like to start with the local folks first, uh, just to make sure that their, their questions are answered. Uh, but I'll, I'll take everybody's question. Sir. Senator, uh, Senator Brown says he wants the governor to declare this a disaster and to have FEMA come in uh, and help. Uh, do, you, do you agree? Should that happen? So I, I, I haven't seen that. I've talked to the governor about this. The, the one issue that we have to be careful about is we don't let Norfolk Southern off the, the hook. There's some tension between declaring a federal disaster and having FEMA come in and then shifting the liability of this accident to the federal government as opposed to the train company that actually caused the problem. So we have to be careful about that. But I'd say my main emphasis is we need to get the resources necessary for this community to rebuild. Just to follow, Please. what would be more helpful for the folks who live here? Uh, having this declared a federal disaster or not? It's a good question, John. And I think we need to actually figure out 
how we wrap, sorry, Tom, sorry, Tom. Uh, it, it, it's a good question, and I think we need to figure out how to more rapidly deploy resources here. Uh, what I've heard inside is that in terms of pure financial support, now talk about the cleanup. I think Norfolk Southern has not done the job they need to do on the cleanup. But in terms of pure financial support, the community that I've listened to feels like they're so far getting what they need. So right now, I think we need to emphasize this is Norfolk Southern's problem. They deserve the financial, they have the financial responsibility to fix it. And that's where I'm focused. Uh, but look, this is a dynamic situation. That could be a different answer three days from now. Senator J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio in East Palestine, Ohio, today. More on the chemical spill from the train derailment. Haley Bimiller is a Columbus Dispatch reporter covering state government and politics for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, joining us now by phone. Thank you very much. A lot of discussion about the state versus the federal government's roles in responding. What is the latest today? So the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency has been closing closely working with uh, federal EPA officials. You know, Governor Mike DeWine has, you know, been in contact with people throughout all of this and providing information. But they've said that a lot of the sort of regulation and enforcement and management of railroads is done by the federal government. And so the investigation, for example, is being conducted um, by the NTSB the state's deferring to the federal government on that at this point. I think there are some conversations happening in the legislature about what Ohio could maybe do in response to this, but it's there seems to be a sense that, you know, a lot of this falls on the federal government to address. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio wants a federal disaster declaration declared for the area, but Senator J.D. Vance Senator Brown's a Democrat. Senator Vance is a Republican. Not so sure about that. What are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, I think Senator Brown is interested in seeing more federal resources go to Ohio to ensure that this is cleaned up in an efficient way to get residents you know, back on their feet as much as possible. Governor DeWine's office has said they're continuing to look into the prospect of a federal disaster response, but at this point, they don't think the state qualifies for that. That is because there hasn't been any property damage necessarily to people's houses and things like that. So at this point, DeWine doesn't think that they qualify for FEMA relief. They have called in some uh, teams from Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to help address some of the health-related needs that residents are experiencing. But that's about the extent of it right now. It's been a few weeks since the derailment. What does the crash site look like now? How far along is the cleanup? There's still, uh, it's my understanding, I have not been up there, but it's my understanding, you know, they're still, you know, cleaning up some of the pileup. Um, they've I think I saw something today that says they've stocked up about 900,000 gallons of liquid from the area. They're continuing to clean up contaminated soil and things like that. You know, residents have been allowed to return to the area in the wake of air testing that indicated that things were safe for people to breathe. But it still is very much a, a village in disrepair right now. We're talking with Haley B. Miller from the Columbus Dispatch I realize that at this point they're dealing with the the immediate effects, but have there been any discussions about long-term costs of the cleanup and health care concerns? 
I think health officials in Ohio are waiting to see what happens. You know, there is an understanding that, as you said, some of the real effects of this won't be known for a long time. I know one thing that's been on people's minds is, you know, whether their drinking water is safe and there are some private wells that have undergone testing and we're still awaiting results on that. I talked with uh, an engineering professor uh, near Cleveland who said, you know, there long term there could be concerns about if any of this got into the groundwater versus uh, the surface water and, you know, whether that is, you know, going to affect people's wells, maybe not necessarily right away, but sometime in the future. So I think, you know, this this community is going to be potentially feeling the effects of this, you know, for a long time to come beyond just, you know, this initial aftermath. And finally, we've been seeing video of town hall meetings out of East Palestine where people are, are very angry. Who are they angry at? I think a lot of their frustration is directed right now at Norfolk Southern, the railroad that was operating this train. Um, People were hoping at the town hall last night, actually, to hear from the railroad officials directly, but they declined to attend the town hall due to security concerns, according to the mayor. I think there's also some frustration with the federal government and even media outlets about, you know, they feel like they were getting ignored initially, that people didn't understand the ramifications of what happened up there immediately. And, you know, there are federal officials on the ground there today. I think some people are wondering why it took them nearly two weeks for to make that happen. And, you know, as I said, there's also been some criticism of the media coverage of this. Haley B. Miller, Columbus Dispatch reporter who covers state government, politics for the USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau. She's on Twitter at Haley B. Miller. Thank you very much. Thank you. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast anywhere you get your podcast and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. President Biden traveling this morning to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, to get his regular physical examination. It's his second one since being elected president. Last one was in 2021. And when they got back to the White House, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, asked how it went. The president's back from his physical, uh, we to get a readout uh, position at some point. So, as you just mentioned, the president has his, his physical this morning. It was very, uh, very much, the exam was straightforward. And uh, as you all saw, he returned to the White House to get back to work. Uh, in um, Hopefully in a couple of hours later today, we will have a comprehensive written report from his doctor. The same, uh, this is going to be the same transparent way that we did it uh, back in 2021. So you can expect uh, to hear directly from his doctor via this comprehensive written report. Any flags in the physical? Uh, I, I don't want to get ahead of, of, uh, of, of the doctor. As you saw, he just got back moments ago. Uh, they're working to finalize the memo. As soon as we uh, have that for you all, we certainly will share that. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, with reporters in the White House briefing room. President Biden himself doing an interview today with NBC News saying that he believes that the physical went very well. And then later, the physician to the president, Dr. Kevin O'Connor, putting out a five-page detailed statement. The last part, is labeled the summer summary 
And it says this patient's current medical considerations are detailed as above. They include AFib with normal ventricular response, hyperlipidemia, gastroesophageal reflux, seasonal allergies, spinal arthritis, and mild sensory peripheral neuropathy of the feet. For these, he takes three common prescription medications and two common over-the-counter medications. In the next paragraph, President Biden remains a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male who is fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency to include those as chief executive, head of state, and commander-in-chief. An article at CNN about the president's physical exam reads, President Biden, who would be 86 at the end of a potential second term, has faced consistent questions about his age and health from conservative critics. Presidents are under no legal requirement to release information about their health and can choose which details are made public. Reports from the White House physician over the last several decades have consistently described the officeholder as fit to serve. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has proposed that all politicians 75 years and older be required to take a mental competency test. The White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, asked for a response. One on Nikki Haley, who is now running for president. She uh, is calling for mental competency tests for politicians 75 and up, clearly a dig at the current president. In her first speech, she, since announcing her run, she said America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. We won't win the 21st century if we keep trusting politicians from the 20th century. Does the president have any response to that statement? So I'll say this. Uh, again, I'm going to be very careful, as I am, when speaking about uh, a candidate. She's currently, a, as you all know, a candidate for 2024. So I am covered by the Hatch Act. So I'm not going to speak to her directly and her comments uh, specifically. But I will say this more broadly. Uh, you know, we've heard these types of attacks or remarks before. And, you know, if you go back to 2020, uh, they said that the president couldn't do it in 2020 and uh, attacked him there, and he beat them. In, 20, in 2021, when he entered the White House uh, and uh, worked to do his best to turn everything around with the economy tanking, with no COVID, real COVID comprehensive response, the, the president got to work and was able to pass the American Rescue Plan with the help of Democrats in Congress. And guess what? They turned around uh, the economy and he beat them there, too. In 2022, when everyone was talking about a red wave and saying that we were going to get another shellacking, if you will, uh, the president beat them as, at their own game there as well. And so I don't know, maybe they're for, they've forgotten, maybe they're forgetting the wins that this president has had over the last couple of years. But I'm happy to remind them anytime. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Nikki Haley, the Republican presidential candidate, asked this morning in a Fox News interview how she thinks former President Donald Trump, who is running for president again, would do on her proposed mental competency test for politicians older than 75. She said, I think he did great the last time he did it. I have no reason to think he wouldn't do well this time, but I do think we need it. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat from Pennsylvania, his office says that he checked himself into Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Wednesday night for treatment of clinical depression and that, quote, he is getting the care he needs and will soon be back to himself. Many senators and House members extending their support. Senator Tina Smith, Democrat from Minnesota, tweeting, In the short time I've worked with John Fetterman, I've been struck by his resilience and heart. John is doing exactly what he should do, which is seek help. Seeking help when you need it 
is a sign of strength, not weakness, something that John is demonstrating for all of us. This is Washington Today. A House Republican delegation traveling to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona today, led by the Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, joined by four Republican freshman representatives. They're there to get an update on border security and immigration issues from Customs and Border Protection Tucson sector. Before a tour of the border, the speaker spoke with reporters. First of all, thank you for having me here, Sheriff. Mayor, I appreciate the opportunity. And to, I've brought a number of freshmen here, too. This is in Juan Siscomani's district. Uh, but the freshmen that we brought so they could have an understanding of what's going on in the border. And in this area, it's a little different. Sheriff, you told the story that a couple years ago, it was only 5% inside your, in your jails dealt with what was going on on this border. Now it's 45%. This area here has the largest percentage of getaways. And it's different than any other place in the border. You look at the terrain. But those who are coming across the border are all wearing camouflage. On their feet, they have carpet shoes to make it harder to get. And the sad part of what's happening here is the country of Mexico does not know who's leaving their country. America we do not know who's coming into our country. But there is one entity who knows le- who is leaving Mexico and who's coming into America, the Sinaloa cartel. Because nobody comes across this border without pain. Learned a story earlier today of an individual came up, went through an opening where the wall had not been finished and tried to come across. It wasn't the border agents who were able to stop him. It was the cartel who grabbed him and beat him. And this is the problem that's happening. So we're here to gather information. Since I've become speaker, what I'd like to have is make sure the sheriff came to Washington, gave a powerful testimony. But what I'd like to see is that people don't have to come to Washington, that the members of Congress come here to have the hearing, to learn the stories that the mayor told that's happening with a 16-year-old doing 105 miles an hour, hitting uh, a lady at T-boning her and killing her when she was retiring and on her birthday. 16 years old, came from Phoenix because the cartels are hiring. I just listened to the sheriff, says the number one employer in this community is now the cartel. Hiring American individuals, and that's what he's trying to stop. So I thank you for being a part of it today. I know we're going to do a press conference a little later, but we're going to take a tour with the mayor and the sheriff. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California in Arizona on the U.S.-Mexico border, and as he said, joined by four new members of Congress, all Republicans. Supreme Court today removing from its calendar an oral argument in a case about Title 42, that's the COVID-19 health emergency policy which limits migrants' ability to seek asylum. The case had been scheduled for March 1st. 19 Republican-led states trying to keep Title 42 in place, challenging the Biden administration's attempt to get rid of it. The Supreme Court did not give a reason for taking the case off its calendar, but President Biden plans to end the national public health emergency on May 11th and has said in court filings that doing so would make this case moot. A Washington Post story, top House Republicans exploring significant changes to the nation's food stamps program, including benefit cuts and stricter work requirements, as some in the new majority scramble for ways to slash government spending this year. The early discussions have come in the context of the budget as Republican leaders look to deliver on their promise to eliminate the federal deficit over the next decade. That from the Post. 
The Senate Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee held a hearing today about the federal food aid program called SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, asked Deputy Agriculture Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services, Stacey Dean, about the spike in recipients during the COVID-19 pandemic. CBO says that total spending on SNAP will exceed one and two-tenths trillion over the next decade. That is a staggering statistic, especially considering that when we were developing the last farm bill, the applicable number was 664. Our people's confidence in SNAP is undermined when this administration usurps Congress's power of the purse and very unilaterally increases the program's cost by hundreds of billions of dollars without any concern to the fiscal impact and the impact on inflation. So before I ask questions, I'm going to kind of sum up a philosophy I have. I don't know how it's shared by other people. But February 2020, we had X number of money and people on food stamps. And then we had to intervene and spend a heck of a lot of money before the pandemic. So I assume if you do something because you have a pandemic, you have an emergency, that when that emergency is over, you go back to what's normal. And normal would be February 2020, plus inflation, plus the number of people that, that have increased in population. And that figure that came out of the Budget Committee is nothing similar to that today with what they were projecting, with the reality of if you didn't have the pandemic. So the pandemic cannot be used as an excuse to ramp up federal spending. So my question to you, Undersecretary, what role do you think the increase in food and nutrition spending has contributed to food inflation for middle-class families that do not qualify for SNAP? Well, let me just first remark, if I can offer a friendly amendment on your principle, I would argue uh, a program share of GDP, it's share of the economy. Uh, you were talking about actual um, real spending, which I appreciate. I think uh, it's uh, share of the uh, GDP is probably uh, a better marker. And I do expect that SNAP will return, uh, return back um, as we see participation fall in response to a, a, a stronger economy. That does take longer among low-income households. We saw that after the Great Recession, too, right? They are often uh, first fired, last hired, and their ability, uh, when the economy recovers, it doesn't always include um, everyone equally. And so it will just take a little longer, I would imagine, for participation to abate, but we expect to see that. Um, in terms of the, uh, the broader question you asked, that might be a better question for our Office of Chief Economist, and I will check in with them, but it's important to remember that while SNAP spending is extraordinarily important to the households who receive it, benefits modest though they are, it is actually a relatively small share of the overall uh, ag economy and food economy, and we can get that to you, sir. Stacy Dean, Deputy Agriculture Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services, questioned by Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, at today's Senate Agriculture Committee hearing. About 41 million people get SNAP benefits now, each eligible household receiving an average of $230 per month. Another committee member, Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat from Georgia, asked Undersecretary Dean about a proposed change to SNAP eligibility dealing with those who have served time in prison for drug offenses. 
Today in America, uh, federal law, uh, in some instances, it seems to me, uh, informed and supported by um, a view of the faith that sees it as a weapon rather than a bridge, is denying food assistance to returning citizens. Returning citizens who were previously convicted of a drug-related felony, including nonviolent offenders and those who have served their time at a time when we understand much more than we did 30 years ago, 40 years ago about uh, drug use, the, the ways in which huge swaths of our population, whether we're talking about poor urban black folks or poor white uh, people in rural communities engaged in self-medication and dealing with this illness. So convicted of a drug-related felony are, are being denied having paid their price paid their debt to society, being denied food assistance. Uh, the Biden administration, Ms. Dean, has proposed to eliminate this restriction. Why is this a high priority for the administration, and who would be helped? Uh, thank you, Senator, and thank you for slowing things down and uh, reminding us of why, uh, why, we're, why these federal nutrition programs yeah. exist. Um, the Biden administration per, uh, supports enthusiastically repealing the ban, uh, which is a state option, because it, um, uh, it worsens food hardship, as you just said. When an individual is leaving, uh, uh, is leaving incarceration, we want to support successful reentry. That, that, and uh, denying food uh, undermines that fundamental goal. Stacey Dean is... Agriculture Deputy Undersecretary for Food Nutrition, Consumer Services, questioned by Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat from Georgia, at today's Senate Agriculture Committee hearing. It's the latest in a series of hearings the committee is holding as it writes the 2023 Farm Bill, which would be the latest in a series of farm bills. They've been passed into law every five years since 1933. Wall Street today, the Dow down 431, and NASDAQ down 214, S&P down 57. During this Black History Month, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden screening the movie Till at the White House tonight. The movie tells the story of 14-year-old Emmett Till of Chicago visiting family in Mississippi in 1955 and being lynched after allegedly whistling at a white woman and how the murder became a turning point in the civil rights movement. The president spoke before the movie was played. To remember history is to shine a light on the good, the bad, the truth, and who we are as a nation. And our history shows that while darkness and, don and denialism uh, hide uh, very much, uh, they erase nothing. They can't erase the past. They shouldn't. Only with truth comes healing and justice and uh, repair and another step forward in a, for that promise we all made to have never reached a more perfect union. But we've never fully given up on it. That's why we can't just choose to learn what we want to know and what we shouldn't. We have to learn what we should know. We should know everything about our history. And that's the great nations do. Great nations. And we're a great nation. And that's why history matters so much. You know, that's why this film matters so much. You know, it was almost exactly one year ago that I signed a law more than 100 years in the making. It's one of the great honors of my career, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, making lynching a federal hate crime. You know, folks, lynching is pure terror. 
enforcing the lie that not everyone belongs in America and not everyone is created equal. Pure terror to systematically undermine hard-fought civil rights. Innocent men, women, children hung by a noose from trees. Bodies burned, drowned, castrated. Their crimes, trying to vote, trying to go to school, trying to own a business, trying to preach the gospel. False, false accusations of murder, arson, robbery. Lynch for simply being black, nothing more. With white crowds, white families <clears throat> gathered to celebrate the spectacle, taking pictures of the bodies and mailing them as postcards. Hard to believe, but that's what was done. And some people still want to do that. You know, as this film powerfully does, it tells the story of a mother's loss and a young son's promise, a nation's reckoning about hate, violence, and power. President Biden at the White House before the screening of the movie Till, the story of Emmett Till. Some news out of Georgia tonight. The, a portion of the special grand jury report released saying that one or more witnesses in the criminal investigation of former President Donald Trump may have lied under oath while testifying. And the report recommends the Fulton County District Attorney pursue indictments for perjury in those cases. Grand jury investigated Donald Trump for possible illegal interference in the state's 2020 presidential election, which President Biden won, and the report finding no significant fraud in that race in that state. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories that Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.